Chapter 18 May 10th, 1969 About a week after the change of command, the prisoners of Room 6 were enjoying an afternoon courtyard break. It was a warm, humid Saturday afternoon. In the sky beyond the ten-foot wall, they could see the storm clouds rising, heavy and dark. Bly used to describe what transpired next in detail. Soon after they were locked back in the cell, he said, quote, Here come the damn thunderstorms and rain. Then the power failed. Somebody said, I'm glad this son of a bitch is off because we'd be going tonight. End quote. Dramisi thought so too. He said, quote, I think we ought to go. This would be the perfect night. Bach conceded so in his retelling. It was the perfect night for it. It sure was. It was the first one in more than a year. Red Wilson was sitting on his pallet, leaning against the wall. Barr recalled that, quote, by the night of the escape, Red and John had not even been talking for quite a while, end quote. Wilson barked, the goddamn thing is off. Of course, an argument broke out. After a few minutes, Wilson raged. John, I don't give a shit if you run and pole vault over that fucking wall. I couldn't care less. If you're gonna go, you're gonna go, but I'm not gonna give you the okay. You ain't going unless Connie says you can go, end quote. Dramisi replied, okay, put me in the ceiling. The rest of the room was bewildered. Don Heiliger recalled that Dramisi, quote, certainly didn't ask Red's permission. He felt he was still the senior person, and by that time he was not. We boosted him up so he could converse with Connie. We happened to be next door to Troutman's cell so we could tap, but in this case he wanted to have a direct conversation with Connie boosted up in the ceiling and John being up there, just above him, talking to him. I don't know if we had really done that before, end quote. Most of them had thought that the planning was a good idea, but that an actual escape would never occur. Lengiel said, quote, As John would tell us, it's got to be a Saturday night. we got to have a storm. The conditions would just have to be so. We always said those exact conditions would not occur, and even if they do, John probably will not be given permission. End quote. Dramisi was about to ask for permission. First, they had to notify Troutman. Next door in room five, four men clustered under a mosquito net, playing bridge with their toilet paper cards. Mike McGrath leaned against the wall. It helped ease the constant ache of his horribly disfigured left shoulder. He had dislocated the shoulder and broken the same arm when he was shot down nearly two years earlier, and the Vietnamese had never treated him. Now he heard the muffled sound of shave and a haircut echo through the wall. Following Room 6's change of command, McGrath said, quote, I don't think we had too much communication over the next few days, but then about a week later, on a Saturday night, we get the tap on the wall that Dramisi is going into the attic, come up and talk, end quote. Dramisi wanted to talk to Troutman in the ceiling. Troutman knew what Dramisi wanted. It was a rainy Saturday night. Uh, I just dreaded it. I just dreaded it. In room six, men went to the vents, door, and window. A moment later, they gave the all-clear signals. Four men lifted a pallet and Dramisi to their shoulders. Dramisi popped the loose barbed wire free and boosted himself into the ceiling. Newcomb was one of the men clearing the room, watching out the window. He remembers the shutters were open, a rare occurrence. He said, quote, On the night of the escape, it was open, and we stood in front of it to mask clandestine activity. I think I had a toothbrushing session that lasted over an hour, end quote. Mike McCushton remembered thinking, It was like, holy shit, you know, I didn't get up this morning ready for this. Chapter 19. 
God bless. The whisper came in a harsh burst from the ceiling vents in room five. McGrath and Troutman heard Dramisi's voice. Connie, are you there? He was talking through one of the gaps in the walls above the ceiling. When his cellmates gave the all clear, Troutman was lifted onto the shoulders of another man. Quote, I stood on the shoulders of Bill Austin, who's a big 6'2", end quote. Austin was the tallest man in the room, and Troutman could lift his face to the barbed wire covering the vent. When Troutman talked about the party in February 1999, he said he remembered his conversation with Dramisi verbatim. I knew, I just knew, this is going to become a memorable event, uh, probably tragic, which it was. But I kept repeating the conversation over and over and over to myself until I was released. What transpired was happening. Troutman's version of the conversation differs from what Dramisi published in Code of Honor, but he insisted it was precisely what was said. As Troutman recounted from his perch on Bill Austin's shoulders, he whispered into the ceiling, J.D., is that you? He replies, yes, we want to go tonight. And I respond, uh, well, what has changed in your plans since last month? He said, it's a Saturday night in a training. I said, well, that's nothing new. And John says, but we are ready to go now. And I said, crucial question. What does the committee have to say? After all the trickery, what does the committee have to say? Here's the reply. John says, they said they'll go along with whatever you say. Well, I didn't like that answer. Uh, it was a brief pause. And my mind is going to Malibu. Do I refuse him on the spot to let him go? Here's the words that I told John. I said, John, I'll leave it up to you. If you go, you go without SRO approval. There's another pause. About 10 seconds. Get no answer. I said, John, what are your intentions? He says, we are going. My only response to two words, God bless. That is the extent of the conversation. Troutman withdrew from the vent. Decades later, Dramisi said that if either Wilson or Troutman had told him no, he and Atterbury would not have gone. I'm no longer the SRO in my cubicle. I'm still a military man. I'm not just going to go off and do these things by myself. And someone asked me, uh, well, would you have not gone if you were told not to go, well, yes, I would have not gone because I was ordered not to go. But that was not the case. Troutman, you know, he did say, uh, I'm not going to tell you you cannot go, and I'm not going to tell you to go. The decision is yours. So if the decision is mine, if that's what he's telling me, well, then I will make that decision, and I made the decision to go. In Troutman's own mind, the SRO was already in torture. He knew the escape plans were careful and meticulous. He believed Atterbury and Dramisi were thorough in their efforts. There was no question of Dramisi's desire. But Troutman still questioned his own judgment. Did he have the military authority to let them go? Did he have the moral right, knowing the real torture that was to come? Not only for himself, but possibly for every American in the annex. He knew only one thing for certain. That God bless was a very tacit approval. In room six, Baugh could hear mumbling in the ceiling. 
Eventually, Dramisi called down. We're going. They hoisted Atterbury on a pallet. No one said much. Langell admitted, I was kind of aghast that it was actually going to be. End quote. Heiliger was even more blunt. Quote, I didn't ever think it would go off. I thought it would appease John, but that it would never come. End quote. Atterbury went into the ceiling. Dramisi said, See, I stayed up in the ceiling and I, I sat down. I just said, we're going. And then they lifted Ed Atterbury up on the, uh, on the pallet and we got our water and jugs and uh, all our supplies. Part of the plan included loading the party dolls with water, taken from the supply that the NVA let the prisoners keep in the cells. Dramisi said, We had the water jugs uh, passed to us, and we drained the water jugs, and we uh, filled up, you know, some of our plastic... Uh, we used up all the water, and then dropped the jugs down. Below them, their cellmates fixed the party dolls' mosquito nets and bed pallets into nighttime configuration as part of the plan. Atterbury and Dramisi replaced the barbed wire over the ceiling vent and disappeared into the ceiling's darkness. On both sides of the wall, the cells were thick with silent tension. They tried to ease it by playing bridge, except Troutman. That night, I lay awake all night, unable to distinguish between the normal rat noises crawling around or their creaking. To, I couldn't. I couldn't distinguish which is left. They were very quiet. In room six, more than one man said that Wilson grumped that no matter the outcome, he was happy to get rid of them. Heiliger agreed with that sentiment. Quote, the tension was real high at that point. I think we all were relieved to see them go on one hand, but we were worried about what was going to happen. End quote. A short time later, in room five, McGrath could hear the roof tiles being worked free. They went out Maybe four o'clock. The camp is shut down. We were playing cards back in the corner. We played cards. We played bridge until about two or three in the morning. Thinking, so tomorrow the ship's going to hit the fan and they're going to come get our cards. They're going to tear us apart. We're not going to ever be playing bridge again. Next door, Heiliger, the data keeper in room six, distinctly remembered the bid on his cell's last bridge hand. Six, no trump. Above them, the party began. Chapter 20. The Party. Al Meyer said that by the time the party dolls got through the roof, the rains had stopped. Room 4 prisoner John Borling, who earlier had broken a light bulb that illuminated the escape route, said that he heard the party dolls crawl past his cell. Borling wrote in an email to me, quote, we exchanged whispered good lucks, but not to be, end quote. Beyond that, the only person who could describe what happened during the party was John Dramisi. He told the story in an interview at his Pennsylvania farm in April 1999. Before he described the escape itself, I asked Dramisi if he felt any fear or adrenaline during the escape. He differentiated between the times before and during the escape. He said, A lot of people talk about this business of the rush and all that. All you're interested in is doing it. Proper. You, you're, you're thinking about so many other things you, you can't think about. But there is an element of, of fear, to say the least. Once you get into it, well, then the plan takes hold and you move and you do the things that are necessary. He said the greatest element of fear was just prior to the event. That is the real point at which 
everyone has to either master fear and people are recognized as being courageous or they turn away and then people look at them as being a coward. That is perhaps a noteworthy statement. First, Dramisi shows concern for the perception of others rather than the necessity or morality of the action itself. Secondly, it's a very binary statement. Essentially, master your fear and be courageous or be seen as a coward. Everyday life itself is seldom that simple. Dramisi said the critical point is just prior to the escape. When it's all happening and getting over the wall, I'm thinking, oh, got this wire I'm caught on. Come on, get me off the wire. And, you know, you got to, there are a lot of things you're looking at affecting the end of the plan and you're working toward that end. And, but the anxiety, I think, is, uh, is most prevalent prior to. Dramisi's description of the escape itself is presented here, edited only for clarity. Atterbury was now in the ceiling with Dramisi. Got out on the roof, and uh, the first thing that happened, which was somewhat of a setback, I grabbed a hold of the lightning rod, and that was electrified. It was a storm, of course, and I think it was just a lot of static electricity around. And uh, so we couldn't figure out how to get off the roof because we were going to tie the rope onto the... It was a rather stout the thing, and then go down the side. So instead of going down the side, we went forward and onto the privy, the john, and then over the wall of the little cubicle. So that's how we got down. But before we did that, uh, there was one time where the guards came by, and we had to hide under our blankets. Uh, and the roof, fortunately, was was all black because the light was out on the other side. They came by and they were doing some frog hunting in the, in the pond there, and then they turned around and left. When they left, well, then we had three stations. One was at the bottom of the rope getting out of the, the prison. The other was halfway through the courtyard. It was by the pond. There was a little pond where everything was thrown in. And then the last one was between the wall and the outside john mm-hmm. prior to the going over the wall. So those were our three stations. The plan was I would go down to station one, and then I would move to station two, and Ed would go down to station one, and then I would move to station three, and Ed would go to station two, and then I'd wait for him at station three, and then he would go to station three. I got to station two, and he was at station one, so that, that went just according to plan. And then I, I was under this camouflage net. And as a matter of fact, Ed commented later on, he said, thank God for those for those nets because I was taking a hell of a lot of heat because I was wanted to hide the blankets and I wanted the brooms and uh, all these things were risks that were, at, but at the same time, if accomplished, would reduce the ultimate risk later on of, of being able to get out of the prison. I got to station two and I got under the blanket, under the camouflage net, and then Ed got down and did the same at station one. So nobody was going to be able to see us in the rain and, and a dark night unless they came over and, oh, look, look at it, because, you know, it, it was crude, but it was most effective. And I was ready to, to go up, and I was curled up on my side, and I lifted 
blanket up, and I was right by the path that led from the zoo annex to the guard shack. It was a cement path. And all of a sudden, I saw these boots that were, you know, it was that that close. So, again, can it be done? Yes, it can be done if you prepare properly and if you know what to do. When the boots moved off, I waited for a while, and they got into the guard shack, and I couldn't see them. I thought I'd be able to see them and know when he got into the guard shack, but it was raining again, which was one of the things that we planned on. And when I thought they were in the guard shack, and I didn't know for sure, well, then I just got up, and I walked behind the sleeping quarters uh, to the Station 3 and waited for Ed. Well, I expected that it would take a while for him to do that, but all of a sudden he showed up just like that. And I said, holy mackerel, how did you do it so fast? He said, simple. When you got up and walked across the path, I figured you knew it was safe, so I got up and just followed you. So he never stopped at Station 2. He walked almost all the way across the whole camp. And then we climbed up on top of the privy and uh, still had our blankets, still had all our stuff, had everything except the rope now, because the rope was tied and we had to leave it there. And, and I removed uh, a couple of tiles because uh, the rope around it would have broken one. One did break, by the way, and tumbled down and crashed, and, and but it, things like that were happening during the uh, rainstorms anyway. So those tiles were removed and then the rope was on the wooden brace it was dangling there, but, it, you know, you had to probably look for it, which is what they saw probably the next day. Then uh, we both got up on top of the uh, outhouse, and Ed already knew that we would have to somehow short out the electric wires. You know, on top of the outhouse, there were metal stanchions, and then there were maybe five strands of barbed wire, and then there were two strands of electric wire. At this step of their plan, they drew on Atterbury's experience as a telephone lineman. Ed made this uh, metal rod that had a hook on it, and so we put the hook over the top strand. This was his idea, but I was doing it. Uh, and then I dropped it, and then when it dropped against the bottom strand, then it put out the lights in the whole camp. It short-circuited the whole camp. And uh, all the lights went out, which is what we wanted. But again, that was un that was not uncommon for all the lights to go out during a during a, a rainy period. It's worth noting here that Ba had said there had already been a power outage, which precipitated the escape in the first place. Electricity must have been restored in the camp by now, based on what was happening back in the cells. That is why Atterbury had to defeat the electric wires topping the wall. Dramisi described how the camp fuse box was amazingly close to them on the side of the interrogation building. He could see two NVA guards trying to reset the large circuit breaker switch. He would get the lever and he would try to reset it, and he would shove it back and it go, and he'd it back down again. He couldn't get the, uh, he couldn't get the thing going because uh, it was short, short circuit. It was coming, going back. Then I dropped down to the ground on the other side, 
uh, and then Ed came over, uh, or I dropped the burlap bag, and then Ed came over, and then he dropped, and I caught him. And uh, then we were in the road, which uh, ran along the outside wall of the prison, of the zoo annex. And the road went down and then turned and went toward town, and that's where the gate was. So we were pretty close to that gate. So we dropped uh, over and went into the brush where this was concentration of these huts. There were some bushes and so forth. So we dug our way into the bushes. And at that point, I think we were near a garbage pit because we, we could smell the, the fish and, and so forth. And at that point, we stopped and we took out our disguises and and then I got the pole, he got the burlap bag, we uh, touched ourselves up with all of the makeup, we put the hats on, we put the surgical masks on, we put our shoes on, I think we were going barefoot up until that, up until that time. Once we got ready, we just went right out into the open, on the road, and then walked towards the entrance of the zoo annex, and turned right and then went out to a, a main street and turned right again. And when we turned right, we were practically in the middle of the town because in the middle of the town, there was a pipe that came up out of the ground, which probably was where they got their fresh water, and the water would be spewing over. And so we walked right past that, and just about past that, uh, there was one person that came in the opposite direction, and we looked at him, and we were carrying the pole, and, and we practiced, by the way, walking and carrying the pole. And we both nodded. He said something, and we grunted, and we kept on going. And we didn't know whether we were recognized or not, but we, we had a feeling we were not because uh, there was no excitement. So we literally passed uh, a peasant in the middle of town at night, on a rainy night, of course, in our disguises, with our carrying poles and burlap bag and sandals and surgical masks and so forth. I don't think it was the flu period at all, but we wore the mask anyway. <laughs> when is the flu season there? <laughs> I don't remember when the flu season is, but we had the mask on and we just, and our conical hats, and we walked right by, uh, right by him out of town. Jermisi laughed at this, and then returned to a favorite theme. So, uh, can it be done? I asked the question again, and certainly it, uh, it can be done. One, if you have the will, and two, if you make the effort. So you have to make the effort and reduce the risk. Uh, then we were on the road going out of town, and there was a dike, uh, what do you call it, levee or something there. And we thought that maybe it would be time to get off the road instead of being on the main road, although we probably should not have. We would have made a hell of a lot better time. Uh, I had to go out and literally help Ed because we had to swim and wade to get to the other side. A truck was coming by from the other direction, and there were lights. And, and I think looking back at it again, they were probably looking for frogs or whatever. And when we saw those lights and we saw the truck, we hid in a pig pen for a while. And when we finally thought that it was okay, we started out again and then figured we had wasted a lot of time. But actually, we hadn't wasted that much time. Things were going rather well, and we should have continued, but we decided to look for a good hiding place. And we came up 
upon an abandoned church. It was all boarded up. And we found a, a thicket, and we dug into the thicket and decided to hide there for the day. But, of course, we should have uh, continued going because I'm convinced that we still had uh, at least two or three hours to travel. And if we had traveled, we would have been able to get out of that security uh, circle. It was a little church with a steeple, and it was all boarded up. And We didn't attempt to get inside, but they ripped the, the place apart going inside. But we were outside in, in a thicket. It was still dark when among the bushes of an old church on the outskirts of Hanoi, John Dramisi and Ed Atterbury hid and slept. You've been listening to The Party Dolls, the podcast adaptation of the book by George Hayward. Next week in Episode 8, the North Vietnamese discover the escape, the manhunt is on, and the men of the annex suffer through mad dog season. I hope you'll join us. Thank you.